Welcome to the Corrymeela podcast, a series of interviews timed to coincide with this first year of Brexit and the centenary of the partition of Ireland. For this season of podcasts, I've been in conversation with guests who've brought rich and varied insights to aspects of Irishness and Britishness through the lenses of politics, the arts, history and theology. This week, the final podcast in the season of 12, my guest is the internationally renowned fiddle player, Martin Hayes. He's a giant in the traditional music world. Martin is one part of the Celtic supergroup, The Gloaming, has won countless awards for his compositions and collaborations, and has played alongside artists like Sting, Paul Simon and Yo-Yo Ma. Martin explains to me how the best music comes from the musician's heart and also tells me about the unifying power of a melody. In Northern Ireland as well, it should be noted that both sides of the political divide played this music without thinking of it as a nationalistic music one way or the other. I even encouraged students in the early years of their journey to begin to access feeling and to allow themselves to do that and to begin to experience it and let it grow. And that the practice of that is every bit as important as the practice of figuring out the technical requirements needed to play your instrument or to play the particular piece of music. Hello, my name is Padraig Tuma, and you're listening to the Corrymeela podcast. With me today is the musician Martin Hayes, one of the world's most celebrated fiddle players and an influential figure in Irish music, with solo albums and, and collaborations with Dennis Cahill, with Troar, with The Gloaming, and with the most recognisable names in Irish music, and lately with the Martin Hayes Quartet. Martin, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Padraig. Delighted to be here. Where are you talking to us from today, Martin? Uh, I'm talking to you from Madrid. Uh, I've, been, I've been living here for a number of years. My wife is Spanish. So just to give you some context or explanation for why that is. So there you go. And I'm right beside the, the Senate building here and uh, just a stone's throw away from the Royal Palace and, and a cloistered convent. See, that makes it completely a, a kind of a city Spanish experience. Amazing. You were born in Fecal in East Clare to a musical family. And was it in the, is it in the village of Fecal or was it even outside of that that you were born? So, yeah, I, I was born in a small farm um, on the side of a mountain with a fiddle playing father and cows and cattle and donkeys and sheep and pigs and, you know, one of those small farms that did everything when I was a child. In fact, the, the farm was, was run and managed using horsepower. At the time, you know, we caught hay with horses and uh, did all kinds of things. So the, the, there was no tractor on the farm. It was it was very, very much uh, like I got a glimpse of, a, of an older way of life growing up. Yeah. Uh, maybe by the time I was a teenager and we were all in the EEC and whatnot, um, it seemed to change by then. Like Gradually, it, it became automated and more specialized and whatnot. But it was quite a, a mixed and rustic kind of experience in my earlier childhood. Your father, PJ Hayes, was a, a founder or one of the founding members of um, the Cayley Band, that he was um, involved in a farm as well as being quite a renowned musician locally and around Ireland. Did that kind of give an impression that music was something you did while you had other jobs to do too, rather than music as a way of professional life? 
Oh yeah, I I never dreamt of of music as a professional life as as a child, as even a teenager, even as a young adult. I I, I actually didn't uh, imagine this as a possibility. Like I didn't so much so that I didn't even investigate the possibility. It was a foregone conclusion that there was no career here in in this thing that I was doing. And uh, so I just more or less fell into this accidentally, you know, and uh, like as a way of temporarily surviving, I think some years later when I was living in Chicago, I started playing in pubs and clubs. And that gradually led me to go, you know, maybe maybe this is what I do. Maybe this, this would be the thing. Having said that, it, it, it was also be fair to say that music, nonetheless, was the central passion in my life. Yeah. Uh, whether I was going to have a job or not, a job was going to be something that facilitated other aspects of life and maybe facilitated my opportunities to actually play music. But uh, it, 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 I never intended to um, have a career in music. I, I've been struck by how how much attention you gave to music even as a teenager like you'd won the All-Ireland was it six or seven times before the time you were 20 and you were learning a lot I know from hearing you talk elsewhere you were learning a lot from people who came through the house and from parish gatherings where there was music and so you were learning from um, people who were steeped in the tradition ordinary people with their own jobs their own farms their own livelihoods in the parish but nonetheless who kind of embodied a, a phenomenal incarnation in the local music tradition in east clare yeah exactly and and the thing is um we, we, it's important to make the distinction here that that uh, there is no real musical distinction between a professional and a non-professional in this music form um, like people who are dedicated to this can become very, very fine musicians. In fact, some of the finest musicians that have influenced me over my life were firemen, carpenters, farmers, and uh, the, 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 like Willie Clancy, like the famed piper, like he was a carpenter. He, he, he worked with his hands. Uh, Tommy Potts, my favorite fiddle player of all time, was a fireman and later a, a, a rent collector. And so, so, so the, the idea that there was a separate higher level of art found within the professional sphere what didn't exist at all, you know. But I, but it it did make sense to my mind to be dedicated to something, irrespective of its financial reward, irrespective of anything like that. So I was quite taken with the old people, uh, with these older musicians, um, with with their subtlety of understanding around these things and the passion and the heart and the feeling. So I, I, I fell right into that when I was a young teenager. Did you recently release a piece called, is it Makara Mountain, that you had written as a teenager? Oh, I did, yeah. yeah. That, was, um, that actually happened as a dare uh, with my father. <laughs> um, he, uh, we, we went to Sunflag Hill and there was a, a great accordionist from Tipperary. His name was Paddy O'Brien, you know. And uh, he had written many, many tunes. Uh, and Like he was a great musician, but he was also a great writer of tunes. So my father on the way home says, I'm amazed at Paddy O'Brien, just the amount of tunes he can write and how well he has written them. It's incredible. And I go, it's not that big a deal, you know. Like it's not that hard to write a tune, uh, I say, you know, not having written any. And uh, so then, of course, yeah, well, where are your tunes was the next question. So I, I decided, okay, I got to rectify this. So I sat down to write a tune so that um, I could kind of, you know, bring it, you know. So anyway, like a few weeks later, I played this tune for my father and he wasn't that impressed by it. Like I don't, he, <laughs> he, he didn't want to be impressed by it. Like, because he, like this was a dare that was laid down, you know, I, I, it was much better if I would lose this one, but I, I, 
I insisted. But then on another evening, we were visiting Paddy Canny, my uncle, a very fine fiddle player. And I just snuck the tune out without saying anything. And he goes, my God, that's a lovely tune. Where did you get it? And vindication. So anyway, um, but as happens, you know, with those with the music in this tradition, it's, it's not like I ever registered the tune or anything like that. It, it actually got recorded many times before I ever recorded it, and it got recorded under various different names. And many, I, I remember at a session hearing it come up, and I said to somebody, Where'd you get that tune? And he says, Oh, that's one of Connor, Tully tu- Connor Tully's tunes. I was going, like, Not alone did he not know who had written it or the name of it, but he actually was quite sure that somebody else had written it. So anyway, it was just, but that's uh, actually how the tradition works because you you contribute a piece of music to a larger pool of music and they're absorbed by the, the world at large and they pass through a few hands and all of a sudden nobody owns them. Nobody knows where they come from and people start changing them little bit by bit. And so they've, they, they take on a life all of their own, you know, so it's, it's an interesting process, I think. I wonder, would you play Mockery Mountain or a bit of it for us? We'll try and play a little bit, yeah, absolutely. It was written by a lovely fellow from Tipperary. Yeah, exactly. Paddy O'Brien, I believe. That's such a beautiful piece of music, the the Makra Mountain. Um, and I read on your website that you wrote um, that a fundamental driving belief for me is that the local musical vernacular can be a universal language when fully embraced. What is it about um, the local musical vernacular that intrigues you so much? The deeper you go into this thing, um, the more the more it just goes directly into a world of feeling. You know, and and the further you pull back from it and try to create like universal dressing on it, the more you you seem to move away from its center. And uh, like so, it's it's feeling is that's universal. It's heart that's universal. It's it's uh, the deep feelings that drive music that are actually universal. So so the closer you can get to those things, the more resonance these things have. I think on a global scale, you know. Um, like people, like the, the, the musicians, we get lost a lot in terms of like we get caught up in the techniques and the technical elements of all the things we do. And there's a lot of admiration for it, a lot of enjoyment, actually, just in seeing what people do and hearing the, the way they do it. But outside of our musical fraternity, that largely means nothing. 
you know, <laughs> like even to a great jazz musician, the, 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 there's there's kind of complexities in scales and patterns that they play that is generally lost on people who are not like schooled in that. And so that, that, that like a music can be rich in that form and yet actually be lacking in communicative powers, you know. And so the same, it happens in all music forms. Well, not all music forms, like pop music just doesn't get caught in that trap because it's actually intended to connect directly, you know, one way or another, whether superficially or deep, but it's never not about connecting. Uh, but uh, but in, in these other music forms, we, we, we get trapped very often in, in um, ways of seeing and, and experiencing these that's, that prohibit us from really connecting, I think, more deeply in a human level, you know. I know that you've said that, you know, you were taught earlier on that um, you could have all the technical prowess, but if you weren't playing with feeling and for feeling, that the technical prowess would fall away. Who taught you that? Did you pick that up or did somebody say that to you particularly? Well, yeah, that was kind of a, a general understanding among the musicians that I had known that it, it wasn't it wasn't that they were opposed to technique or, or, or having all your technical capacities in place, but that if that was your focus entirely, you were still fundamentally missing what was going on in this music. And that if, if one of those things had to be missing, it would be better to be missing technical proficiency than to be missing genuine expressiveness and feeling. And uh, and so that you, you end up in a situation where you'll have technical masters uh, delivering something quite empty sometimes, and people who have a modest capacity on an instrument someone, somehow managing to get to the heart of the matter. And I'm sure it's, it's probably a similar experience in many art forms, you know, that, that you have that kind of... Uh, you know, discrepancy as it were, you know. I mean, the best outcome, of course, would be to be a complete uh, technical virtuoso with lots of heart and feeling. I think that would be the, <laughs> that, 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 that's the final goal, but, but not everybody can achieve that goal. And it's one of those things in a music form that's not necessarily um, considered to be like a, a professional performance, performance music in the normal sense. Um, it's, it's a kind of a... Uh, a, a music form of participation and uh, people can participate in this music and I even encourage students in the early years of their uh, journey to begin to access feeling and to allow themselves to do that and to begin to experience it and let it grow and that the practice of that is every bit as important as the practice of figuring out the technical requirements needed to play your instrument or to play the particular piece of music. So just connecting yourself to feeling in a very innocent, very vulnerable, very naive kind of way, I think, is a good practice right from the beginning of your practice. So I tell students that in a certain sense, once you access that, you've already hit the gold because that's all it's about. So the rest of it can continue to improve, but all the time you are then actually playing music. I've heard you a few times demonstrate what something that sounds like it's filled with great kind of um, decoration and flourishments and embellishments sounds like, and then something that has maybe more the plaintive note of the original melody with less decorations. I wonder, could you give us an example of that somehow to draw out the, the feeling that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what I'm talking about there is like when, you know, like fiddlers often play for other fiddlers. They may not admit that. Uh, and uh, and when they do that, they like other fiddlers to be very impressed by the things which they can do. And um, so so you, you, you would tend to like 
You know, whereas just the clean, simple phrase is is actually um, uh, a much truer experience of music. I give you a very short sample there, unfortunately, but yeah. but uh, the, the the point, like simplicity, is something to. Um, to embrace also and it's something that you know it's not hard to do but it's hard to get yourself to do it like and it's hard to yeah. feel comfortable and certain that you have value while you while you do the simple and um, and it's particularly difficult as a performer to actually sit on a stage sometimes and look out and see a lot of people in the audience who you know yeah i guess they're sitting out there and they could technically do what i'm doing would they would feel very vulnerable doing it and are unlikely to do it on the other hand you know so it's just one of those kind of paradoxes you know uh like embracing the simplicity is is um i think a necessary part of the music that i do so much whenever i hear you talk about music and the idea of going into the plain style of the music and knowing what technical capacity is for and knowing when not to be led by that but to be led by something else so much of that sounds to me like lessons for life not just lessons for you know performance or for playing in a musical troupe yeah i think it i think it is a lesson for life i mean i think one of the sad ironies is that i know all these things myself and i haven't applied all these lessons to my life <laughs> but 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 music is a great little laboratory where i i get to um, try out these things in a certain sense and and in a way the proof is in the pudding really you know because like it, it does generate the actual results one is looking for if communication is in fact your 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 desired outcome here you know um in a way going into the simplicity going into the directness of it is is like fundamental you know that phrase you use there if if communication is your desired outcome is such an easy phrase but i think it's um an important thing to pick up i think often in conflict even communication is not the desired outcome winning is or not losing or proving yourself and i think the desire to communicate and to be communicated back to is actually strangely evasive because it does require some kind of vulnerability it does like you kind of have to like yeah vulnerability is a key element and uh, and i think a desire to kind of commune to connect to to um to open your heart out and feel that that openness of your heart is actually reaching others and their hearts are also opened in that sense you know um like you know i mean if one thinks about performance for a while that you know there, there are a lot of things you can achieve in the area of performance i mean maybe one is to impress to disturb to distract to do there's all kinds of things one could imagine doing but i definitely have chosen uh because of the nature of the music and because of what i've taught and how i experienced it that the heart feeling of the music is something i want to have exist in the room in the moment when i do it and that i want others to experience it know it share it feel it you know and and it's it's so then it, life is relatively simple uh, when 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 you kind of finally narrow it down to that you know
Corrymeela is Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. Working with thousands of people a year, Corrymeela supports groups to deepen inclusion, peace and belonging. This is the final episode of the first season of the Corrymeela podcast. We've been delighted to bring these conversations to you from our kitchen table to yours in this important year. If you had three or four minutes to give us some feedback, we'd be grateful. We have a feedback form and you can find it as well as the transcript and discussion questions for this episode on corrymeela.org forward slash podcast or linked through the show notes in your podcast app. Okay, back to the interview. You're listening to the Cory Miller Podcast and I'm Padraig Tuma. With me today is the musician Martin Hayes, whose solo work, collaboration work with Troer, The Gloaming, the Martin Hayes Quartet and others have won him Irish and international renown over decades. Martin, obviously this is the Cory Miller Podcast and for 2021, we're especially interested in thinking about Britishness and Irishness. You know, it's the centenary of partition, it's Brexit year. And I'd like to talk to you about music from different regions across Britain and Ireland. And I would get the impression from you, although I haven't heard you talk about it, that, you know, in the kind of political narrative of Britain and Ireland as these two monoliths, that actually you would see it on a much more regional level in terms of East Clare or the Aran Islands or Donegal or the Glens of Antrim or Dingle or Hebridean music or Arcadian or Cumbria or Cornwall or Welsh or Shetlandic. You know, could you talk about the musical traditions that you know of from across kind of parochial and small regional levels across these islands? Well, you, you kind of said it all there. Like, I mean, like it, it was an interesting way to say it, like was to mention regions in Ireland and regions in the UK and not fundamentally make a distinction. And yet there is a distinction between all of them. There is as much distinction between Clare and Donegal as there is between Clare and... Um, Northumbria. There, there are as many tunes from Newcastle in the repertoire of Clare fiddle players as there are from Donegal. Uh, it, it's, it's a very interesting kind of thing. And I mean, I think in Northern Ireland as well, it should be noted like that uh, both sides of the political divide played this music without thinking of it as a nationalistic music one way or the other. And uh, it has always been important for me to, um, you, you know, understand that primarily this is music. And uh, it, it is music that is, because of its nature and rel- relative simplicity, is easily connected to one's heart and one's one's fundamental, you know, being. Um, so I think that the the the, the music of the British Isles. Now, there's a very controversial way to, to actually put it. But, uh, like, let's just for the sake of, we can call it the Irish Isles, if you like. But either way, um, it, it's it's. Um, there's a direct connection and as you go back into the older music you can like when you scale back the melodies you can see that yeah it's one music actually you know like you know where it's just not that different like if you boil it back to the direct melody there's not huge differences and uh, and 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 give us an example i i i don't know if i could well like for example like i've been out like playing this tune i've recorded it many times
Now, that sounds like uh, something from West Clare. It sounds like it's got a crying sound to it. But it's also uh, a Morris dance tune. And it's also a mummer's tune from the southeast of Ireland. And so I think, like, the kinds of people and the kinds of experience they have when they put these tunes in their hands, certainly something different happens. There, there's a, a melancholic experience in the west of Ireland that, that's more distinct and more obvious that, than you would hear in English folk music, for example. So there's so that the melancholia of music was very attractive to the old players that I knew. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if the famine didn't affect um, drive some of that, you know, and the landscape and the maybe the harshness and challenges of life itself would, would have kind of made people kind of wallow in their own melancholia and sadness in some ways. And and what, what, what's interesting about it is that it, it, melancholia is something that, that um, allows us to access our heart quite easily. Now, it might sound like a negative and a dark thing, but once you access your heart, it's irrelevant what it was that got you there. Uh, your heart actually opens up, you know. So so sometimes the, the, the melancholic music, people think of it being sad, whereas, like, my feeling was actually kind of euphoric uh, in a way when we actually touched that, like when we really touched upon that and, and it got into you, you know. That, that, that was kind of, like, uplifting in some strange way, you know, or as if as if that melancholia itself was suddenly transformed into something euphoric and joyful, you know? I mean, as I, as I think of reconciliation and peace and troubles and conflict and murder and colonization and dispossession and revenge and all of these things, they're all subjects to do with melancholia. But it strikes me that as a musician who has worked in melancholia and lament for a very long time, that you've thought about these in ways that other people haven't, in the sense of that you're saying, if it gets you to the heart, it's not such a bad thing. Exactly. I, I mean, I think, you know, one thing that we forget is that uh, children and, and young teenagers like have lots of tragic experience uh, in their relative world, let's say, you know, and lots to be feel traumatized by and lots of angst and stuff like that. So I had no problem as a young teenager accessing uh, this melancholic world, you know, and was drawn to music that had that. I still am, you know, I look for the slow movements in classical music. I, I, I look for the ballads and jazz. I still do, you know. Um, I, I, I am drawn to that side of music very strongly and, uh, and I would consider it the most meaningful and, and deep part of music. But it's not that I'm looking for sadness. I'm looking to uh, get to the bloody root of the thing, you know. And, and in a sense, when you, when you actually experience that then, like, like you're sitting there with like tears of joy, like as it were. You, you know, you're, you're kind of, you, you transform it. You, you, you use the energy of that and it becomes something beautiful or something like that. I, it's hard for me to explain it, but... Uh, but it, you're explaining it beautifully. <laughs> I mean, am I hearing you saying that from some of the West Clare music that the laments would have kind of longer, rolling, drawn-out phrases of music that are elongated for maybe the sound of a sigh? Exactly. I mean, it would be kind of like a bent note...
you, you know, so so like those notes are kind of like keening, you know, which was like used in the funerals, uh, in the, the in the waking of people and stuff. So so, and the Shannos itself is just full of it, you know, particularly in Connemara, and. Um, and so, like it's it's in the piping. It's, it's as if the pipes are built to make those sounds. Like a pipe doesn't go, bump. It got, you know. It's like it just doesn't. Like it's not a clear, definitive note as we see it in a on a page of the dot. You know, it's more like a smudge. And uh, so, so, so the the the, the relationship with music uh, like that, where we're bending and and uh, and kind of like looking for emotion just inside one note itself, as if there's a story in the note itself. Are there instances of music or pieces of tradition of laments about Britishness and Irishness? Um, maybe those are collected in ballads about, you know, an Irish girl marrying an English boy or something, or are there are there particular things that you can think of that speak of that? It, it's hard to know because one of the things that happen with melodies uh, in, in Ireland is that they acquire new lyrics almost constantly and uh, they keep mutating and moving around. So like, so the, the more abstract melodic expression is kind of lost in terms of that description, in terms of being specifically about one thing or another. Like I could play, there's a there's a, an air I play and it was kind of, uh, there's a song about the, like these people who died during the War of Independence, the Killaloo Martyrs, and it's a song. But it's also a song like further over the road about um, hurling lore and about uh, Tommy Daly and a great hurling history in County Clare. Equally sad, I should say. But anyway, it was um, so so like to, to draw specific literal historic meaning uh, in relation to a melody is quite difficult because uh, the melody is used to kind of uh, underlay the feeling of the words like to be harmonious with the feeling of the words you know like you don't want to sing uh something about the killaloo martyrs like you know with the air of raindrops are falling on my head or something do you know what i mean like suddenly that doesn't make any sense so so they look for the appropriate melody that reflects the feeling required by the lyrics i think that's so interesting are there specifics of things that you can highlight in terms of, say, um, Hebridean music or Shetland music or Cornish music that you think are quite distinctive that are beneficial to hear? Well, do you know, this will sound strange, but I, I've avoided uh, my interaction with all other Celtic forms of music. I've restricted myself. I play none. It almost feels like it's incest, as if I was crossing a line here where, where these things shouldn't interbreed because if they interbreed, they will become one. Uh -huh. And uh, so, so I leave it. I leave it to them. And I leave the Kerry music to the Kerry people and the Donegal music to the Donegal people. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I'm influenced by those things for sure. And, and they give me certain license and certain understanding. But on a fundamental level, I, I like to um, say, you know, I'll just do this clear thing because you know what? It's like found art. It's like it was what was on my doorstep. It's like the universe in a small space, you know, an entire universe of music inside one parish. That's fascinating. 
I mean, when I think of Irish music, I used to always just think of Irish music as Irish music. And then I was at an event uh, a few years ago. In fact, it was the last event that Michal O'Sullivan was performing at, an extraordinary event in the National Concert Hall. And in the notes for the concert, it spoke about the Baroque influences in certain periods of Irish music. I mean, I haven't studied music, but it had never occurred to me. But then suddenly listening to the way that it was performed, I heard all of these pieces of Baroque in Turlock O'Carroll and the Blind Harpist and other things. Well, yeah. In fact, uh, if you were to compare the early harp music uh, of the 1600s and stuff like that with the French music of the time, you would say, wow, they're actually not that far apart here. Like, you know, we're on similar trajectories here. The, the, the one thing that's missing is that... Um, different lines of harmony were never actually transcribed to the degree that they existed or didn't exist. Uh, we, we can just draw some conclusions from what has happened in, in other countries in, in Western Europe. But it is fair to say that th there's a likelihood, had there been a different history, that some of the music that we know as this harp music would have ended up as being a, a larger constructive music had there been a kind of support system for that at the time. But uh, having said that, uh, we're left with like the fundamental element, which is melody. And and this, uh, because nothing is written uh, and because it didn't fall under an orthodoxy, it has left us with lines of melody and freedom. So now I sit around playing these tunes like, you know, maybe in a jazz ensemble or a classical music environment or something like that. But I'm dealing with a core musical element, a, a line of melody and great freedom to experiment and play around with that because uh, what, what other restrictions may have been with it in history, had history been different, just simply doesn't exist. And so, you know, off we go. <laughs> I heard you once say that, you know, in Irish traditional music, it does take a line of simple melody and then it plays back and it plays back and then it introduced some pieces of variety until the melody itself has varied totally and then maybe it comes back again to the original melody. What is it about that? I mean, I even in the conversation here, you've spoken about the relative simplicity of that. Well, like if a painter was to paint simply in black and white, they would find degrees of grayness and blackness and subtleties within uh, that would be lost if one just simply existed with all of the colors. So the, like having to focus on that would, would bring you into a different realm. Um, focusing on a line of melody in the absence of harm harmony brings you to a different level of understanding and engagement with melody and a very subtle one. That's something I recognized from the old fiddle players and stuff was that like they just would see one note has been slightly more important than the other in this thing. And then they would shade that note in very subtle ways to bring out its kind of quality. And um, and then, the, you know, the, 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 the lead up to that note was very important. And you could come with different, slightly different lead ups to that point. And, um, and so, uh, like, so, so they had a very subtle understanding of melody. And yet, if a guitar, a piano, or anything played alongside them, they were unaware of what was happening. They almost were blind to the harmony, like to use, to mix our metaphors here. But uh, it, 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 they, they literally couldn't hear it. And they didn't hear it. But the guitar player rarely heard the subtlety of the melody either. 
could you give us an example of a, of a line of melody that could be open to all kinds of different small modifications to build up a whole kind of yeah. tune around that yeah. melody? Okay, um, let's see. If I if I look at the Star of Monster, for example, like it's, like I'll just give you like if you walk into a pub and you hear a session. Beautiful. Like in the context of conflict resolution, often what you're hoping for is that people can talk to and listen to each other. Communication rather than I say what I'm saying and while I'm saying what I'm saying, you're waiting to interrupt to say what you want to say, which is contradictory to that. And often it can be seen like um, overlapping monologues rather than a conversation or a dialogue. And it strikes me that what you're doing in listening to a melody and listening to that over the course of decades and allowing yourself to sink deeper and deeper into all that's implied in that is a profound form of listening. Yes. In fact, listening, it is a profound form of listening. And when you play with others, um, listening is the key element. And giving when I'm saying, of course, one has to listen to oneself, but for effective playing with others, um, your listening needs to be more than 50% to the other. You really need to be hearing every nuance of what the other person is playing. And you need to be feeling it what's more. It's it's not enough to just hear. You need to actually be understanding the idea being expressed. And somehow there is some kind of magic that happens where there's a simultaneous kind of uh, coming together, a kind of like a like a, a large kind of cloud of understanding that we're just simply in together, you know. Do you think that if a group of traditional musicians are playing in a session and if, if they have been in um, a place of deep distrust with each other as a group of musicians, do you think that comes out through the music? Do you think that the music and the relationship between the musicians has some kind of corresponding nature to it? No, quite the opposite, actually. What, what, what can happen is these people can hate each other and, and they can actually find each other's hearts in a piece of music uh, and, and can actually be fully trusting and communicative to each other in the music form. I say this because I've experienced that. Uh, it, 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 like where, where a band is not getting along and then suddenly we, we, we sit and play music and there's actually shared love and communication in that moment because the music is probably that important to all of us in the end of the day. 
and uh, so it's possible like you you would see this with bands like where 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 they don't even hang out afterwards you know you know, if a band have been in a state of deep distrust, then they pick up their instruments and they take part in that magic, that driecht together. Like, do they pick up their weapons towards each other again afterwards? Well, you know, with, within reason. Like, I mean, I'm not talking about like outright warfare, like or anything like that, because obviously nothing would withstand that. But, 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 but you could have a situation where there isn't actually deep human communication on a personal level between musicians. But in music, there is a very deep communication. And uh, so I've had that experience for sure, where, where people's hearts are suddenly seen. And that's what I found interesting about the old musicians at Clare was I could see their heart. And, and, and other than that, I could have thought they were kind of shut down, hardened human beings who just kind of, you know, beat cattle into a pen, you know, one morning, you know. Uh, but actually, they were the same people like, that had this lonesome sweetness and delicacy in their hearts as well, you know. It's just, in, you know, there was kind of a disconnect there in some ways. But and and it's one of those things. It's the other thing is like, why like some musicians can be complete assholes and make divine music, and never be mistaken. They are not necessarily angels or nice human beings, but in the process of music, they've been able to accept access that deeper part of who they are. Because there are some very unpleasant musicians who have can reach very profound depths as as musicians. And what I'm hearing you say is that that doesn't mean that there's hypocrisy in the music, that actually no. the music is accessing a deep truth That's rather correct. than, oh, yeah. It's the other way around. Like, yeah, it's like there's a deeper truth in the music uh, than, than almost anything in that sense, I suppose. So in the process of making music, one can for certain sure that that human being, if they're a good musician, is, is actually being real because it is about being real. And uh, and if if you're hiding and ducking and dodging and not being real, your music has no power. It it doesn't uh, it doesn't move far from you. Like it doesn't reach out and, and touch other human beings. Like it's only when it has the the drive and power of its sincerity behind it can it actually connect. I mean, th that could be that my theory. On the other hand, you know, like. Um, some of the lowest grade boy band pop music seems to connect as well. But I, I, I find that that's a different kind of connection, you know, than, than the one I'm looking for. You're listening to the Cory Miller podcast and I'm Padraig Otuma. With me today is the musician Martin Hayes. Martin, I'm always struck when you speak about your home place that you don't just say Munster, you don't say County Clare, you say East Clare. And it's not only the county, it's the particular area within the county and even the village as well. And and a period of your life too, those very formative years from seven on upwards when you were playing and listening and being taught. There is so much about that time that I think is enormously formative for every person. Are there melodies that you have worked with since a young age that you might have heard even before you could pick up the fiddle yourself that you continue to come back to as a meditation or as a listening? They are working their way through my music the whole time, like continuously, right up to the last performance I did. Um, these melodies are baked in and they kind of have had many lives within me. And and so they, they regurgitate as new and different things every 10 years or what, you know. And so they're they're constantly being worked and reworked 
worked and reworked over and over. And uh, and the thing is, if they've been with you long enough, they're actually baked into your physicality, into your uh, nervous system, into your body, as it were. You know, like they're familiar things within you. My dad and my my uncle had recorded this tune back in 1958 or something like that, and uh, I would have learned this early on and played with my father, played with everybody. you know I did I would have changed keys I would have made variations and stuff so suddenly that becomes So the, the last performance I did of that was with a, a, a great young jazz pianist from Cork. And so he was able to take that then. And then I was able to kind of come, come back and play all their versions of it and impressions of the tune underneath it. And largely I could do that because the thing is in my bones for so long. You know, it's like just I have familiarity with it, like from so many angles at this stage that, you know, the tune just has lots of possibilities for me now, you know. Years ago, when I was getting training in chaplaincy, one of the things that I was taught was that anybody in grief needs to tell their story of grief until they don't need to tell it anymore. And that might be a month or a decade or a lifetime, depending as to what the grief is. And as I think of, you know, the griefs and joys of a local area, like you're talking about in East Clare, that in the melodies, somehow, even without words, there's the stories that continue to repeat themselves, to tell ourselves back to ourselves and what you're doing. Do you find a sense of connection with identity that's less political, but more local? I do, actually. Like, uh, there's a kind of heroic quality to um, these musicians. There's a, an unspoken, unrecognized depth and beauty and need for acknowledgement, even historically back over time, uh, like to kind of recognize the depth of the beauty they were carrying, to champion it, to respect it, to uh, offer them the praise that was missing and so well-deserved and needed, the human acknowledgement, the depth of their souls. All of that, that feels important to me that that continue on on some level. And you think caught up in some of that music is the sadness that some of the people who wrote the tunes um, knew that they wouldn't be recognized and that there is the sense of lament in it? Well, I think the sadness might be ours because like they were able to do without that concern, it seems. And uh, they, they were able to go there for the sake of the thing itself. Now, in truth, they were like a secret society because among themselves, they could recognize and acknowledge each other. 
Uh, Tommy Potts, the great Dublin fiddle player, used to come to Clare at least once a year. And his only mission was to go to three or four houses that were very sympathetic and empathic to what it was he was about. And he would go to the house of Sean Reed, Peter O'Loughlin, Paddy Canny, and my father. And he would play for us every night. Just him, unaccompanied, nobody else playing, even though he was in the house of other musicians. We would hear him. We would recognize him. We would feel him. And he would go back to Dublin, satisfied with just a handful of people getting what he did. I mean, if you write a poem, if five people deeply get it, it is satisfying, even if the rest of the world misunderstands it or ignores it. And when I made my first solo album, I wrote the names of six or seven fiddle players on the back of it that he was dedicated to. And my intention with this album was that it was actually for them. And if they accepted and enjoyed and experienced it, I didn't care if another human being ever listened. And I was fine. I'm struck with the names of the people that you're mentioning, that lots of them, in fact, most of them or all of them are men. Is there something about this music and Irish masculinity of a particular era that, you know, do you have thoughts about that? I do, except that uh, the masculinity in this sense was actually, what, what I was finding was femininity uh, in this. Like I was finding their feminine qualities, as it turns out, uh, the kind of qualities that wouldn't be expressed anywhere else at any other time. And, uh, and so, so it was as if that feminine side of that male personality was certainly uh, alive in these experiences. Now, I haven't said that. I mean, my, my, my favorite musical colleague like that I grew up with that I had the most sympathy was uh, a woman, uh, but she was just my own age. Her name was Mary McNamara. And the two of us kind of had a, a soul connection when it came to music as if we deeply, deeply understood each other, which we did. And that was my first uh, music collaboration and sense of, of communication with somebody else, you know, outside of family. And, um, and in other parts of the county, there were, of course, very fine uh, women musicians. My my own grandmother, who I didn't really know, was a concertina player as well. Um, but, you know, there were people like Aggie White and, and other great, like, women musicians. But they were absolutely a minority, and there were very few of them. So the musicians I'm talking about are simply the ones that I knew. You know, it wasn't like I was ignoring the women to find the men. I, I didn't have any choice, you know. Martin Hayes, thank you very much for your music and your thoughts and your insight into how music and community and uh, identity come together. Thank you, Patrick. I've enjoyed it very much. My guest this week was the brilliant musician Martin Hayes. Be sure to listen right to the end when Martin tells us about feeling stateless in the States. Martin was the final guest for our first season of the Corrie Miller podcast. I've enjoyed talking to all my guests, each of whom have brought something fresh and unique to the questions of identity, Britishness, Irishness, theology, our shared histories and artistry. Our deep honour and thanks goes to all the guests. Mary McAleese, Gail McConnell, Johnston McMaster, Anthony Reddy, Claire Mitchell, The Edge, Christine Bell, Ibn Joseph, Peter Sheridan, Michael Davies, Leah Shimada and Martin Hayes. We have a feedback form on our website or in the show notes for you to give us any thoughts and we'd be delighted to get that from you. 
We want to thank our funders, the Henry Luce Foundation, the Fund for Reconciliation of the Irish Government, the Community Relations Council of Northern Ireland, and the support of the Friends of Corrymeela who give annually or monthly. Enormous thanks to the brilliant researcher and producer Emily Rawling, the magnificent producer at FanFan and Frasans of Safe Place Studios. And, of course, huge thanks to you, everyone who has listened and been in touch. I'm Podrigo Tuma, and this has been the first season of the Corrymeela podcast. Goodbye. Martin, tell us about a time when um, your national identity felt important to you. I think my national identity felt important to me as a kid when I was like engaging with traditional Irish music and very much in the culture. And my instincts all around were utterly conservative because it was about the conservation. It was about the preservation. It was about identity. And it was all of those things in, in the early formative years of my music. And could you tell us about a time when you felt foreign? I, I ended up uh, in America without a green card, and that certainly makes you quite foreign. In fact, I, I existed in a kind of a stateless state for a long time, uh, for many years, in fact, and uh, kind of learned to exist outside of uh, the safety of any national government or sources or security or anything like that. So I, I felt like a global citizen. I'm so struck by, you know, as you think about the other Celtic musics from around the place, I'm so struck by your admiration and recognition of those, but also your recognition of the borders between yours and them. And out of courtesy, it seems to me, you're not interested in appropriating something and you're interested in being rooted locally. Could you say more about why that's so important? Well, I I think, first of all, you, you're carrying a certain kind of weight of your ancestors with you in some ways. And so I, I've just kind of collected a bunch of people around around Clare and a few other scattered locations and, and, uh, and, and where I feel that deep conviction of carrying forward their story in a sense. And so I feel it is others' responsibilities to do that for their ancestors for their people, for those who they feel deeply about that, you know, I shouldn't really, I don't need to champion them. I shouldn't actually, I would be kind of wrong almost. <laughs>